Good evening and welcome to this week's episode of Pop Culture Double Date. This week, um, I am joined by Gerald, Anna, and Maggie, and we are talking about Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Say hello, everyone. Hi. So yeah, this week, the next HP6, I want to say, HP5, HP6, six, six, HP6, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Which one is this about? So um, we've been doing these Harry Potter films basically week in, week out, you know, give or take a week. And um, I was saying last week that um, Order of the Phoenix was a bit of a confusing film because it's one of the few films, well, I I think it's the only Harry Potter film where the the central mystery isn't really in the title. Now, this film is kind of weird because there is a central mystery in this story, which is in the title, but but I guess it's not the central mystery. It's a mystery in this film, but it's not the central mystery. So it's Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. So one of the mysteries in this film is who is the Half-Blood Prince. But really, this film is in my mind, more about um, Harry Potter and the case of who is trying to assassinate Dumbledore. Is it Draco Malfoy and how is he doing it? That's one of the mysteries, right? And the other mystery is kind of um, this this whole thing about um, Professor Slughorn. So what is Harry Potter and the mystery of Professor Slughorn's mystery with Vol- uh, Prof- Professor Slughorn's memory of Voldemort. So these are like the two crucial things that the plot of this film kind of hinge on, right? This plot with Professor Slughorn, where Carrie, for once in his life, well, not once in his life, but probably one of the few times he's been directly tasked by Professor Dumbledore with a task, uh, with a, like a mission, right? Which is, hey, I'm going to get Professor Slughorn into the faculty this year, and Harry, it's your job to extract this memory from him. He needs to tell you this story, right? So there's that. And um, secondly, there's this whole thing of we know that Voldemort is making moves in the background after the events of the Half-Blood Prince. The Death Eaters are coming more and more out into the open. And we know basically at the beginning of the film that Draco has been tasked with something and that Sirius, uh, not Sirius, um, Professor Snape, Severus Snape, is somehow involved in it because he makes a unbreakable vow with Narcissa Malfoy, who is Draco's mother, to basically protect Draco and carry out his task. So there is this other mystery that runs through it, which we know that Draco is up to something. We know that someone is assassinating trying to assassinate Dumbledore and the question is kind of how do these two things link up and how does this resolve what other things happen in this film this film is important because big big spoiler I mean this is a spoilers podcast and this is an older film but this is the film where Dumbledore dies the, the at the climax of this film Dumbledore dies and Snape kills him right so there is um, big, there are like big events that kind of happen in this film that really push the plot along. And by the end of this film, um, Harry and his friends have basically decided to drop out of high school um, because they realize that what is going on with Voldemort is probably more important and requires that they dedicate their time to it. 
So, yeah, that's kind of like the key driving things kind of behind Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince in my mind. Um, it's, in my mind, this is one... This is the last Harry Potter film in which we get a full school year. So the last last Harry Potter film where we're... Um, sort of, we have the privilege of seeing a normal school year in Hogwarts. Normal, in inverted commas, of course, because no year in Hogwarts ever seems normal. But, you know, it's the last time we get to see these characters doing sort of mundane school things, right? Um, yeah, and I actually rather enjoy it. But before I go into it, I'm going to throw it out to the rest of my crew here to get their views on Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Um, who wants to shoot today? Who wants to go first today? Anager, why don't you go today? <laughs> sure. Why don't I? Um, look, I this is my favourite um, movie. I find it the most fun because so much happens. There are so many mysteries. Like, who is the Half-Blood Prince? Is Can he be trusted? Can he not be? You know, on the one hand, you know, he's very helpful. He's providing some really great knowledge to Harry that's, you know, that's led to him winning things like that good luck charm, which becomes so important. But on the other hand, he's developing some pretty cruel, dangerous, sinister spells like Septim... Septim Sempra. Um, so there's that. Uh, there is, you're right, like what is going on with all these, you know, murder attempts on Dumbledore? And then what does Slughorn know, you know, and why is it so important? How are we going to get it out? What's it got to do with Tom Riddle? So there's just a lot in, in that sense going on. So I certainly wasn't bored at any point. Um, it's a very dark movie. Like we were, Gerald and I were saying, it's almost like monochromatic in the way it's shot. Um, very, very dark greys and blacks and browns. Um, I also thought that, you know, I think one of the downfalls though of this movie, like as you were saying, Darren, the name of the film is The Half-Blood Prince, but that's like a side mystery. But I think in the books, it's much more significant because mm -hmm. the books spend a lot more time um, giving us the backstory for Snape. And I think that is so important because Snape is such a complex and deep and like deep character who we can really connect with emotionally and feel a lot for um, in terms of his development and his journey and his character development as well. Like, I don't know any other character that, undergoes so much you know emotionally both in terms of change and also in terms of what he has to deal with in terms of things being taken from him but also the things that he has done in his past that he's ashamed of and how he sort of comes to terms with all of that so i just think his character is so rich um you know in the books one of the main regrets that sirius has is that he's getting teased by james and um lily comes along and because and he's completely in love with Lily. But because he can't stand for Lily to see him in this vulnerable state of getting teased by James, he, like, he he yells, like, just mud blood or something at her. He yells, like, some horrible insult at her to just get her to go away. And that it leads to the end of their friendship. And he just regrets it so profoundly, you know, and it, it, it has such an impact on him. So I just think he has so many, like, he, he has moments like that that, 
I just feel so much for. Like you can really identify with someone, you know, through an act of desperation, pushing away that which they loved the most and not being able to fix it. You know, normally in a story, you do something bad, you fix it. And he's just not able to properly fix it. So it felt a lot for him. And all of that is kind of taken away from this movie. And I think that instead of spending time on that, they spent time showing us the development of the romantic relationships of the children in this movie, which is its weak point, right? Like the Harry Hermione thing is a weak point. The Ron Ginny thing is a massive... Wrong, wrong, wrong relationship. How did you... <laughs> Ron and Ginny are siblings. That would not be a weak point. I would, I would, I would want to see, I would it's want not to see Game how of weird Thrones. that is. It's not Game of Thrones. Um, look, yeah, yeah. So the, the Harry Ginny thing, it's a weak point um so they spent a lot of time on that when they could have developed snape's character and i think it's so important to develop snape because he's gonna have like in terms of character development they are pitching him to be a villain now right like i don't know who bought that snape was on voldemort's side um at the end of this movie i hadn't read the books when I saw this movie and I didn't buy that Snape had killed Dumbledore. I completely thought that Dumbledore and Snape had set that up because Dumbledore looks at Snape and says, please, in a begging way. And Dumbledore has always believed in Snape. So there is no way that he would beg Snape in that please way unless it was to do something that Dumbledore believed Snape didn't want to do. And since Dumbledore believed that Snape was on his side, that must have meant that they had conspired you know, to for, for Snape to kill him. So that's what I thought when I saw it. But I think they are trying to set you up to believe that Snape has gone over to the other side. So there's a lot that's going to happen with Snape in the next movie in terms of the reveal that, no, it was a, it was a long con all along. Um, and, you know, his love for Lily is what kept him on the straight and narrow on Dumbledore's side throughout all of this. And it's just not as powerful if we don't get that backstory. So I was disappointed with that um which is saying a lot because it's still my favorite movie because i do think it's one of the most fun Mm. um and then i also think that this movie um has the most character development for malfoy who is not really a particularly well-developed character even as a villain he's not a standout villain right his dad is more of a standout villain than malfoy is malfoy's a bit sad and pathetic right um but in this movie I think this is when he starts to feel like he's in over his head and he doesn't actually want to be as evil as he is being driven to be. Um, and we start to see that with the stress that we see pile on top of him. He doesn't want to kill Dumbledore, but at the same time he feels honoured that he has been chosen. You know, he is finally special. He's watched Harry, his you know enemy, be special always, and now he has been chosen and he's special. He wants to carry it out, but, you know, the stress of killing Dumbledore, it's, it's it's weighing on him he doesn't want to do it so there's that conflict within him and it resolves at the end i think when he does lower his wand and he doesn't go through with it you know he's not going to go through with it um as hermione tells uh, or, or as harry tells hermione later on and then also when he watches the death eaters destroy the dining room destroy hogwarts you look at his face and you can see that he regrets it that he does not want this to happen to his school that he actually cares about his school he does care to a degree about these people and he doesn't want this to happen and he's kind of tugged along you know with the rest of the crew at the end of that movie 
Um, and then I guess the other big talking point about this movie is Dumbledore's sacrifice. You know, we often talk about Dumbledore leading Harry to the slaughter. Doesn't make it any better that he was willing to sacrifice himself. Initially, I thought so. But another thing that this movie leaves out that's in the books is that Dumbledore was basically terminally ill when he made this decision because the thing that had caused his hand to wither was going to spread to the rest of his body. So he was go- he was kind of done for anyway. So that is why he orchestrates with Snape. That's why he thinks it's worth it for it to look like Snape has killed him because he's he's his days are numbered anyway. So, you know, I do think that then takes away from the idea of, oh, well, look at this huge sacrifice Dumbledore's made. It's less of a sacrifice if his days were numbered. The movie doesn't touch on that. So I think it makes the movie makes his sacrifice bigger, I think. Um, but yeah, those are my thoughts. What about what about you guys? Yeah, look, I mean, let's have a, let's have a um, quick chat about some of those points, Anija, because I think there were some really great points. Um, I I personally 100% agree with you that, um, like, the time that they spent on the relationships between Ron and Hermione and Ginny and Harry, um, I, I don't think it really landed right like Ginny and Harry in particular in these films I know I know that like Adage's pet um, crusade is basically that Ron and Hermione don't really fit and to some extent I don't think the actors really fit um, that well but like in this film in particular and I don't know if it's because the books spend more time on it or but in the film in particular Ginny's character goes from like this someone who's kind of just in the background and not really that important at all to, like, in the space of one film, like, she's getting it on with Harry. And then she ends up with it. It's, it's kind of weird how quickly her character kind of gets shoved into the forefront, right? I, I don't know, Mags, Jerry, do you, do you guys agree with that? or? Yeah, I mean, she, she just kind of... The, the first time you see her, she's... Um, which is the second movie where she ends up being the holder of that diary and she's a victim that needs to be rescued. Um, and then all of a sudden she becomes this full-blooded character who's strong, independent woman. She's on, she's on, um, the Gryffindor Quidditch team. She can speak up for herself. You haven't sort of been on the journey of her development either. And then all of a sudden you have to believe that somehow Harry has fallen in love with her after the failed relationship with Cho. And in the books, uh, in the movies, I don't think they really explain that. So it does seem quite unbelievable to me. Yeah. Like, I, I was thinking when I was watching this that in some ways these movies probably would have been so... But I know the backlash would have been ridiculous, right? But in some ways, if you were purely, like, making the movie for the sake of making the movie and not following the books 100%, it probably would have been better not necessarily to have that romantic element in the film with Ginny. Like, I actually think that that Ginny element actually detracted from the film, right? And just kind of let Harry do his thing, right? Because if you think about it, he's in a pretty stressful position. It's not really the best mindset to go around, like, getting a new girlfriend, right? So, um, yeah, I, I kind of felt like with the limited time in these films, maybe they should have left that Ginny relationship aside a little bit. I, I don't think it was that important. But, yeah, in this film also, they were doing the Ron Hermione thing, and 
<laughs> I definitely felt with the Ron and Hermione thing, it was um, tell, not show, right? As in, like, there are lines that kind of show that they're supposed to be very fond, romantically attached to each other, but in practice, the way the actors interact with each other, I don't think really shows that level of attraction. But, yeah. Um... Yeah, and I, I think um, I, I think the other point that you were talking about, um, Anna with Draco, like I I one hundred percent agree that like I think this is Draco's film in some ways. It's it's the most development that he gets. But I was going to say, and look, I, I think Tom Felton does a pretty good job with Draco because all those little points that you point like that you noted, Anna like you know the expressions on his face convey, definitely convey this sense of someone who's being dragged along and has kind of gone too far. And it's kind of like when you go too far, you're kind of like, actually, I know kind of, this has made me realize who I am and I'm not that. But like, because he has no choice in it now, he's being forced into becoming that, right? So you definitely have more sympathy for Draco, right? Like he's doing it under duress and you know, like, he may be sympathetic to some of those views, but not to the same extreme as Voldemort is, right? So I think that's... Um, I thought that was interesting, and I thought it was... Tom Felton did a pretty good job with that. Um, I felt the other character, which is on there for a very brief period of time, but I actually really like... It's like one of my favourite side characters in these later, later movies is Malfoy's mum. Right, I don't know why, but I feel like whoever plays Malfoy's mum is really captures this sense of a mum who was basically really just out to protect her own family. She does really does not care about this bigger crusade that Voldemort is on. She just needs to make sure that her family is safe, right? And that kind of plays out in the Deathly Hallows part two specifically, right? But it introduces the character of Narcissa Malfoy, and I love the character of Narcissa Malfoy. I think she's like a really real, like she's realistically drawn in some ways, right? Those motivations, the type of person that she is, there's a sense of like um, verisimilitude about her that like I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I, I thought really excellent points, Andrew, and I, I think I, I agree with pretty much all of them. Yeah. Um, Mags, Jerry, who 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 wants to who wants to go next? Over to you, Mags. Okay, um, I only have I guess three things to say. Um, I really enjoyed this film as well. Um, I thought the ending was very exciting. It ended on quite a cliffhanger. It was an ending um, as much about um, the last time that Harry and Hermione and Ron are really. Um, high school students and you know with Harry saying you know I'm gonna this is my last year at Hogwarts and I'm, I'm not coming back because I have to finish what um, Dumbledore started with the Horcruxes and then sort of and Ron and Hermione saying you know we're gonna come with you can't don't be silly we're gonna you know you can't leave us behind and that's sort of the end of that whole period of their life in that part of the of the storytelling I thought that was really good and it made me want to watch the next film immediately, which I started to do. So um, I thought the way that it ended, the fact that it, it was on such a cliffhanger was, was really well done. Um, I completely agree with um, the points that have been said around um, this movie being the sort of emergence of, of Snape as a 
central character in this broader thriller that's now emerged. Um, and I think for me, it, the movie kind of asks the audience whether you do in fact believe Snape is an ally of Dumbledore or, or Voldemort or if he's like the Malfoys, just looking out for himself. Um, and there are different um, events that happen in the movie that could lead you in either direction and it forces you to think about Snape as a character. And he's also one of the few um, teachers at Hogwarts besides Dumbledore that I think transcends now um, a way, is able to participate in the rest of the story outside of the school. So Snape's one, um, oh goodness, the other Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher, Remus. who's the werewolf, Remus, Remus is the yeah. other, that's it. Um, but not very many of them are able to do that, so he's, I think this movie was also setting him up to be a central figure in, in that story outside of the school. Um, I really like how it opens with him making the unbreakable vow with Malfoy's mother and Bellatrix Lestrange. I think that's a really powerful move, and it's ambiguous. It's really unclear, and I think if you are a huge fan of Snape and you hadn't seen the rest of the movies like we have already seen, um, that plus um, the different um, conversations that you overhear as Harry, from Harry's perspective that he has with Dumbledore, it does cause you to wonder and to um, um, put a stake in the ground, I suppose, on which, which side you think he's on. And I think that makes it quite a lot more interesting as a viewer for this character. Um, the other thing, I suppose, it's probably a bit of an aside, but it's something I really enjoyed about this movie in particular, and I don't know why. I think it did a lot for um, expressing a bit more about the wonder and the mysteriousness of the magic in this universe. So, for example, when you when the movie opens, it's with Harry at a train station um, in a cafe, and... Dumbledore appears and he appears in front of a sign about that's advertising the magicalness of a magic perfume, which I thought was quite tongue-in-cheek and fun. Um, and then you hear as well Slughorn telling the story of how he met Lily. Um, she was the student that gave him the gift of a petal in um, that was floating in water that turned into a fish and the fish disappears when Lily dies. Um, and then um, that the, the sort of um, power of magic through the Horcruxes and that sort of ancient darkness and then Dumbledore's ability, even the, despite the fact that he's been poisoned, to create that kind of whirlwind of fire to save him and Harry when they're stuck on the island trying to, um, to uncover that locket, which is one of the Horcruxes. So I think it actually did a lot to kind of spin that magic and the wonder and the mysteriousness of magic in this world that's something that I enjoyed about this movie mm. okay that's fair that's that's fair um, yeah I, I, like I think to your point Mags about that opening scene I think that opening scene for whatever reason that opening scene sticks in my head like I, I, I actually it's kind of like a weird opening to Harry Potter films because typically Harry Potter films have started in Little Whinging, right? Or like being linked to the Dursleys in some way. This is the one film where they haven't really got a Dursley scene at all. I don't think they have a Dursley scene in this film. And instead you have this film where Harry is basically loitering, well, loitering in inverted commas, um, in this trade station. 
Um, yeah, and there is that scene which is like you know highly you know set piece where you know the train passes and then Dumbledore is standing there um, in front of this the um, the signboard, which I thought was like a very striking scene. But also you have this scene previously where Harry is kind of just being a normal teen, right? Where he's sitting at this cafe and like he chats up a girl and gets a number. And I was like, for a reason, that scene's really stuck in my head because I was like, good on him. <laughs> but more than that, it was kind of like, it gave this sense of, hey, this is, you know, potentially, you know, Harry could have had a pretty normal life, right? Like, I mean, it really sets up this sort of um, contrast with, like, the in, like, insane journey he's about to undertake, right? Where he has this, like, relatively mundane, but, like, um, I guess, exciting experience with a girl. But, like, he kind of, like he's immediately taken out of it and then Dumbledore apologizes to him basically that he had a magical knife stolen away from him right which I thought was quite um well put um but like basically you know Harry could have actually a very normal happy life and he probably would have been very happy with that but instead he is shoved into this world and he has to be the chosen one um in this sort of magical wizarding world right so like for whatever reason because of that that sort of um, contrast. I, I thought that was like that scene has always really stuck in my mind. Yeah. Um, Jerry, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know how to feel about this movie. Uh, it's a very important movie in the franchise because um, it sets up the, the the concept of the Horcrux, uh, which will ultimately loom very very large at the at the conclusion of the series. But if Darren Order of the Phoenix is the movie that you find the most vague in the memory. Uh, this is the movie that I find the most vague in mind mm. because every time I sit down and watch it, I, I think to myself, okay, uh, this is the one where Snape is revealed as the Half-Blood Prince and Dumbledore dies, but I have absolutely no recollection of what else happens in it. And I'm not entirely sure why this uh, is the least sticky in the memory. I have a sneaking suspicion that it has something to do with the fact that in many ways it's quite disjointed and episodic. For example, uh, near the beginning of the movie, we see uh, the Muggle world confronted with the sight of a, a, an ominous-looking cloud that looks like a that looks like a skull, and the Millennium Bridge being uh, tossed around, its various links uh, destroyed, uh, with um, people dying. That has absolutely no payoff or consequence in this film. Uh, then you have the attack on the Weasleys' home, uh, which similarly. Um, does not seem to have a payoff in this movie. It may have in the subsequent ones, I just don't recall, but at least in the context of this movie, it happens. There's a bit of a quick raid by uh, Bellatrix Lestrange and Fenrir Greyback, uh, and then it's kind of all over after the uh, the, the, the house is um, lit on fire. So that, that just felt a bit random uh, halfway through this movie. And um, Fenrir Greyback, there's a scene early in the movie where um, the uh, the famous three are walking um, uh, through. Is it maybe Diagon Alley? And you see um, you see on a wall a uh, a wanted poster for Fenrir Greyback, and you're thinking, oh well, he's probably the big bad of this this film if you hadn't seen it already. Uh, and it turns out that he plays 
absolutely no role whatsoever other than riding shotgun with Bellatrix the Strange at the attack on the Weasley's home. So there are some sort of random hodgepodge elements thrown together in this in this movie that just don't don't add don't add up particularly. And so this movie has always felt less than the sum of its parts because some of its parts are pretty amazing. Um, the sequence where um, Dumbledore and Harry go in search of the first Horcrux in the cave has always been, I think, um, one of the most striking uses of imagery in the entire series. Um, and you have Gabon playing this, you know, desperate and delirious Dumbledore who's begging Harry not to feed him any more of that that elixir that he needs to drink in order to access the first Horcrux. Um, and the the weird things coming out of the water and that scene of Harry being dragged into the water and <coughs> thousands of these creatures um, surrounding him, um, which which I think is a, is a, is an image that James Wan ripped off in um, Aquaman. So um, yeah, there are there are there are some really really striking images in this film. The the way that Dumbledore um, falls off the bell tower. Um, the everyone's lighting up their wands in tribute to Dumbledore um, is a haunting image at, this, at the end of this film. Um, but as I say, these are these are these are moments and parts, and the movie as a whole feels somewhat less than its high points um, to me. Uh, partly partly because of the randomness that um, that I alluded to earlier, but also because you know. It, Everyone has observed that who the Half-Blood Prince is is a bit of a side mystery, but really, the, the problem with who the Half-Blood Prince is as a as a question is, it has no consequences within yeah. the within the context of this movie because it's 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 yes, it's a mystery in the sense that well, who wrote these spells and who uh, you know inserted these annotations in this book on potions, but at the same time. What has the Half Blood Prince done? What is the Half Blood Prince but a name for much of this movie? It just adds up to nothing. And so the reveal that Snape it was the Half Blood Prince doesn't add up to much of a hill of beans. Uh, and so for all these reasons, as as enjoyable as huge parts of this movie are, um, it's always felt a bit slighter than it should. Um, and I've always remembered this as the Snape movie, but truth be told, I think the Snape movie, at least the the Snape installment in the film franchise, is Deathly, Deathly Hallows Part 2, when you actually see the full extent of the backstory and his deep, deep lifelong love for Lily. And you get none of that in this movie. And so all this movie gives you is the apparent betrayal of Dumbledore by Snape. And so you actually don't learn particularly much about Snape in this movie when it really should be the movie that that gives you much more of an insight into who he is, what he's done, what drives him, and, and why he's taken this turn, particularly because of the title. Mm. Mm. You know, the title leads you to think that this is the movie where you'll learn a great deal about Snape, but you don't actually learn very much at all beyond the fact that um, he 
he appears to have betrayed Dumbledore and allied himself to the Death Eaters. So, um, well, I, I guess like they look. I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, I generally agree with you. I, I think. I mean, what they do set up here is that there is ambiguity around Snape, right? So, if you if we put on this view that um, we weren't clairvoyant about the last two films and we hadn't read the book, there is this ambiguity about Snape, right? But you're right. This is a film where they could have really explored his character. Given that the last two films are going to be packed with all sorts of other stuff as well, they probably could have explored his character more in this film and maybe reordered some of the things that happened in the books. Um, but yeah, look, I, I like in principle, I 100% agree that like, I mean, the mystery of the Half-Blood Prince really has no consequence on the plot of this film. It's just a nice little Easter egg. <laughs> Really, yeah. And, and the problem is, like, Snape has always been kind of ambiguous. He's because of the the sort of antagonistic relationship that he's had with Harry, and and of the way he, because of the character design as well. And so, to learn that he, at least in this movie, to learn that he's you know thrown his lot in with the Death Eaters, is no particular great surprise. And so, the fact that this is what the movie offers you about him doesn't feel like enough because all it does is is continue is is kind of lift the veil on one aspect of the ambiguity now once you get to the end of the series you get to appreciate the character for what he's had to do and what he's had to endure and the sacrifices he's had to make and the fact that he of all the persons who are in the in on the plan was the one who had the most qualms about the way Dumbledore was using Harry as a piece on a chessboard, it, it was. It's strange to think that at the end of the day, it was Snape who thought most of Harry as a human being with innate value as distinct from an instrument for achieving a particular objective in the way that Dumbledore ultimately did. So that's that. At the when you when you get to the final film, you have a deeper appreciation for Snape. But given that this is supposedly the Snape movie. You are you are a long way away from those sorts of insights into his character, and you're going to have to wait two more films in order to get there. So, I mean, this movie, in a sense, then is a tease about Snape, but no more than a tease. And whilst it's more fun than Order of the Phoenix, it is definitely more fun because um, there's more levity about it, and um, you know you get to see um, lavender lavender brown. Um, going nuts over Ron Weasley um, and all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, even even then, it, that all just seems a bit a bit silly, not least the fact that Hermione is so crazy, crazily jealous um, over Ron, for God's sake. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, I, 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 probably a top low, but tell you what, you know, Brad Pitt, he ain't. The fact that, that Hermione Granger... Uh, could be driven to such depths of jealousy over Ron Weasley, for God's sake. You know, you know, actually... Joe Biden would say, come on, man. <laughs> you know, I was, I was reflecting, actually, that the scene that I actually like the most with Hermione, which I thought drive the most with her character, is actually the scene when they're in potions class and Harry is topping the class. 
because he's got the the book. And Hermione is just sitting there being so salty over the fact that she's not topping the class, right? I was like, yeah, that that is a great Hermione scene. And that really makes sense. The acting, everything we know about the character makes sense. And then you contrast that with kind of like, you know, when she's like, sort of, she has that encounter with Lavender Brown over Ron's, um, uh, you know, when Ron's uh, in the in the infirmary, right? And that scene was like, that doesn't really seem like Hermione Granger for whatever reason, right? That she would be sitting there having a cat fight with a with this other girl over Ron, it feels a bit odd, right? It, it was kind of weird. Like, so you have this scene that in my mind perfectly encapsulates her, and this other scene which is like, yeah, I know that you're doing it because for the sake of the plot, but it just doesn't quite work for me. I, I don't know if you guys felt the same about those scenes, but yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, absolutely, I, absolutely. And I just thought they, 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 they I mean, of, there is so much about the, romantic elements that are sought to be introduced uh, in this movie um, that's ridiculous. But that particularly is is just bizarre. It's so out of character for Hermione. And, you know, I'm sure there are those who would defend it by saying, but that's, that's the point. It is out of character. Love makes you do crazy things. But, I mean, the idea that Hermione would be so deeply, madly, truly in love with... Ron Weasley of all people is you, you, you just you just don't buy it. Uh, oh, look, I I think I I still stand by my thesis, which is the reason you don't really buy it in these films is because one in the books they have more room to explore these these relationships, and I think it's the same as the Ginny relationship, right? Like you just don't have the same amount of real estate that you have in the books to explore these relationships. Um, and two, I, I think that, like, great... Uh, what's her name? Watson just has more, like, chemistry with Radcliffe than um, Rupert Grint, <laughs> right? But, <laughs> yeah, it was just... just Chemistry between actors, I think, drives a lot of it as well, yeah. I mean, I actually, I actually really enjoyed that moment in which um, Ginny... Uh, is at the Quidditch practice and tells everyone to shut it. I, I quite like the idea of Ginny Weasley as Harry's Quidditch enforcer because um, that was like a, a whole new aspect of her character that we hadn't seen before, but it's such a brief flash. And You've never seen her play Quidditch before either, right? You know, that's, <laughs> true. that's true. So you've never seen her play Quidditch. You've never seen her like be the enforcer. Uh, you've never seen her uh, be so assertive when generally she's just this complete non-entity. Um, and, you know, the fact that she's the one who prompts Harry to throw away the book is kind of important and a callback to Chamber of Secrets given that she knows a thing or two about dodgy books uh, mm. that you shouldn't read. Uh, but, but, God, she's, she still remains, despite these flashes of personality, um, a complete drip. Like, there is just... There is just mm. nothing there. There's nothing to be invested in, nothing to be charmed by, and nothing to see by way of, you know, whatever it is her appeal is to Harry. So much so that when she has these moments of of being, like, powerful, you kind of go, huh? Because, yeah. because it's jarring. It jars with the rest, with 99% yeah. of the time. Yeah, and it's more sort of funny than, than anything else. You kind of have a laugh when 
when when she lays down the law of the Quidditch practice because you're like that's so unginny. Yeah, and I don't know. Look, I don't know if it's screen time or the way they've been written or the actresses or, but I actually feel like Luna Lovegood feels more developed <laughs> than Ginny, right? Like, uh, like I kind of feel more attached to Luna than Ginny. Um, yeah. yeah, because I, I guess Luna has had those individual moments with her. I'm not saying that Luna would have made a good love interest for Harry, right? Because I, I actually think Luna like is very much established as a friend, right? And I think it works really well. But they've had those moments. They've shared this, you know, these brief experiences. And she's basically talked to him about how they've both been near death and so there's that simpa- that simpatico between them right but yeah Ginny doesn't even have that it, it feels weird yeah definitely I've got to say Luna is a kook and <laughs> and and she is played very well as a complete kook it is actually quite quite an impressive rendering of a deeply kooky character um, and and so yes you can't imagine her as anything uh, more than a a friend to Harry, but at the same time, there is there, there does seem to be a deeper connection between her and Harry than between Ginny and Harry. Yeah, which makes you think if if Harry can have this deeper connection with someone that completely kooky, like what is the what is the thing that Ginny all about? Right? Yeah, 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 definitely. But also that that that, um, that Luna is is Harry's date at the. Um, at the Slughorn Christmas party. Yeah. Slug, whatever it's called. Slug Club. Uh, yeah. Is it Slug Slugfest. Club? Slugfest? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, I... Uh, something about Slughorn as well. Like, look, I'm sh- Jim Broadbent is a very good actor, and he's done some very good work. He's an Academy Award winner. He was Archmaster Ebro's in Season 7 of uh, Game of Thrones, where he was the... He was uh, What's-His-Name's boss at the Citadel... Uh, but but God Almighty, this was a distractingly weird performance. Really, um, I like Slughorn. <laughs> uh, dude, it was it was all facial tics. It was all facial tics. Um, it was even more facial tics than than Johnny Depp. Like Johnny Depp is all about the tics, and so is this Slughorn performance. Um, and uh, and once you see the, the the weird thing he does with his eyes. Uh, you just can't see it. And it com- it's completely distracting. Okay. Well, well, that's where. Look, I, I, I didn't mind Slughorn in this, right? I think Slughorn is a pretty interesting character, and um, yeah, I thought Jim Broadman was okay as Slughorn. Look, I mean, my view on this film is that yeah, I, I, I probably look. I, I think there is there is some agreement between myself and Jerry on this being somewhat disjointed and look at the end of the day I actually quite like this film right so I I don't want like you know we're getting into sort of criticism here but it's not necessarily that I dislike this film I still think this is a pretty like a pretty good film and definitely good enough to get me really invested and engaged and I you know I desperately also wanted to watch the next film immediately after this right so it is a good film I guess like it's a weird film in my mind, because there is, like, we are basically getting to, and, like, Order of the Phoenix also has this issue where you are getting to this stage where there's this whole Voldemort thing that is going on, but then you also kind of have the school year. So, 
Uh, and but look, it's also kind of why I like this film as well, right? So yes, this film is a little bit schizophrenic in the sense that it wants to do the school year. It wants to give us that final year at Hogwarts, right? When they're a little bit older, they know Hogwarts more, and they want to give us a fun final year at Hogwarts. But at the same time, they need to do all this Voldemort stuff, which is very dark and <laughs> puts all of the characters in danger, which is very much antithetical to what a normal school year should be, right? So, like... There is this sort of weird sort of contrast in, in the things that this film is kind of trying to do. But having said that, I, I actually, I mean, part of the reason why I like this film better than Half-Blood Prince is because, um, for me, it kind of harkens back in some ways to, um, like, Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet, uh, Go- uh, and, um, uh, Philosopher's Stone and um, Chamber of Secrets, in that so much of this film is actually about, you know, the day-to-day of school at Hogwarts, right? There's a lot of scenes where it's just kind of them in the common room, them in their dorms, like, having a chat about girls, right? Like, there's a whole, like, love potion sort of saga that goes on in the background, you know? Harry at potions class sort of competing with Hermione to try to get top in the class. Like, all these sort of little elements, and then there's also this, like, I really like it, right? But there's this scene where Harry finally is able to crack how he's going to get Slughorn to tell him his secret. And when he drinks the Felix Felicus, the, the potion, I think it is, what that's what it's called. But, like, when he drinks that, it almost feels like Prisoner of Azkaban again when they're doing the time-turner thing, where, like, all these pieces kind of, like, click into place, right? And you feel like there's kind of magic and fun in the air when he takes that um, potion. And I actually really love that scene also, because Radcliffe is so great in that scene, because he feels like he's playing a drunk, right? There's like a... He's kind of... He's not... You can tell he's not really in control of his body, but he's kind of doing it anyway and he's just kind of going along with it and I really loved that it was it was like as Mag said there's that sense of wonder and magic sort of comes back right like because I think when you get into the really dark Voldemort stuff it is you do see the power of magic but you don't get that sense of whimsy and joy of magic right and I think this film is the last like it's one of the few last times when you get a film where so much of the film is about the wonder and the joy of the magic, right? Because, you know, even from the very first scene when, like, um, you know, Professor Dumbledore and Harry go to find Professor Slughorn, and there's this wrecked house, and then, like, Dumbledore waves his wand, and everything in the house kind of goes back to where it was, right? And there's this, like, certain sense in Harry's on, like there's a there's a look on Harry's face when that happens, right? And the audience has that look as well because it's like, oh, this is why magic is so amazing, right? Like these things that are just impossible, but are wondrous and beautiful can happen, right? Um, and I think there are like a lot of scenes in this film that have that, and I love that about this film. But as I said, it does feel a little bit disjointed because there are so many plot beats that need to happen. And then you have to have the really dark bit at the back end, right? So, yeah, it definitely feels disjointed in that end, to the, uh, like in that sense. Um, yeah, but 
And I, I guess one of the things that I, I've been thinking about is, did they do this film and maybe think to themselves afterwards, hey, maybe we should have spent more time with the Snape stuff. And, you know, maybe, you know, we should have let this film breathe more. Like, I wonder if their experiences in trying to condense this really big book, really, into a single film made them think, actually, for the next one, we're actually going to bring break it into two. Because if you think about it, these films have been consistently over two hours. But Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone as a book is way shorter than Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I'd say it's like more than... Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is probably more than like less than half of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince in terms of like word count. I, I don't know. I don't know for sure. But like it feels that way, right? When you look at the thickness of the books. So, you know, there's a part of me that is like cynical, which is, oh, they split Deathly Hallows into two because they could make more money. There's another part of me which is like, well, if you look at the practice of what's happened in the Half-Blood Prince, maybe they did it because they were like, actually, this story deserves the space to breathe and we should actually tell tell it all, right? Now, whether they were successful in Hall Deathly Hallows Part 1 is a separate question, but, you know, potentially that is part of what drove that separation, right? Because as everyone has kind of said here, there's a lot of stuff going on and maybe it could have had more time to breathe. Um, well, I mean, one of, one of the weird things about that is, as I understand it, the book does not actually contain the Death Eaters attack on the Weasley's home. That's that's entirely made up for this movie. Now, if that's true, and I, I don't know one way or the other, then that is a particularly bad call on the part of the the writers and the filmmakers on this on this one because that that occupies quite a lot of screen time that could have been devoted to like other more important stuff yeah because that's an odd scene as well because i think that scene is meant to establish the the harry Ginny relationship because you know how Ginny and harry are the ones that run out right and it shows Ginny running after harry but the problem is it doesn't really establish a relationship because there's so much action, right? Like, it's... It doesn't add up to anything. Yeah. Because, like, like the, the, house is, the house is on fire, great, but, like, no one gets hurt, um, and it, by, the by the time you move back to, to Hogwarts for the resumption of term, everyone's forgotten that it's happened. And yeah. There's no, there's no other payoff from it at the end of the film. So... It, it's it's there. It kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. It's kind of a hanging chat of a scene, and you're like, this. There is so much in this book that's required to be conveyed in this adaptation. Why did you make a rod for your own backs by by sticking this in here? Yeah, and I'm thinking to myself, if 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 like, because I interpret it. Look, maybe I'm wrong, but I I interpreted it as, hey, this is a scene where. Um, Harry and Ginny get to hang out, right? But if that is meant to be a establishing why their relationship works, that would have been much better served with a dialogue scene, right? Or some sort of relationship building scene. Instead of like spells flying around and like Death Eaters everywhere and exploding houses, right? Like it, it doesn't work if, if it is a Ginny and Harry relationship establishment scene. Well, I think they tried such a scene when when Ginny takes Harry up to the to the attic to 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 get rid of the the Half Blood Prince's book, but it was such a nothing scene. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so so the filmmakers were like, all right, 
there is no way we can get these two <laughs> properly to emote and connect in such a way that whatever romantic connection they're meant to have is conveyed on the screen. So we're going to have to do it by by distracting action because um, for, for one reason or another, uh, if these characters are required to talk to each other, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely that... I think definitely I agree that that was a that was a misfire there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So ge- look, I, I think generally it's hard. While I can see the imperfections with this film, it's hard for me to dislike it though because there are like I do actually really enjoy kind of the sort of just the Hogwarts scenes, right? Where they're just at school and there are scenes of them at school and doing school things. Right, like I even love the sort of the slug club scenes, and when at the that the Halloween ball or whatever it is that Slughorn hold, holds, right? I love those scenes. I think they're really fun and like sort of um, wondrous, right? So um, yeah, but then you have this sort of, as people have said, this final scene, which um, sharing an analogy, like I, I know that you you were talking earlier about how. Um, the color palette is very muted, but like, I, I guess my sense was that the color palette is definitely muted from the original uh, movies. But my feeling was that the moment they transitioned into like when they apparate into this like whatever this cave that is like carved into these cliffs, right, in the middle of the sea, in the middle of nowhere, right, the color palette dramatically shifts into like just greys rather than like any sort of saturation um yeah yeah, it was very like from that point on everything was just incredibly dour right um and while i find it um i found it like exciting and important it, it definitely like from that point on like and then knowing what you know about how dour harry um Deathly Hallows Part 1 is, that sort of mood kind of like permeates the rest of these films. So in some ways it's sad, right? Because before that, there is still that joy. And then afterwards, it's kind of like you get like an entire film and a half of just really bleak, <laughs> just just bleakness, right? Essentially. So. I thought a few weeks ago that Prisoner of Azkaban is the first movie where there was more use of desaturated color the first two are actually quite quite vibrant um and there's uh, the the moment where um prisoner of azkaban becomes particularly desaturated is when um uh lupin teaches harry the petrotus charm that scene it's almost but not quite sepia tone it's all it's all sort of um this desaturated earth colors um Whereas this one is desaturated, but mostly mostly a greyish palette, particularly from the moment that um, Harry and Dumbledore um, go in search of the first Horcrux. Um, so yes, you're 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 right that that the the movie does take a visual turn from that point, and it kind of continues into Deathly Hallows Part One, to the best of my recollection. Uh, but that's that's sort of in keeping with the with the nature of the material they're dealing with. I mean, you know, Dumbledore Dumbledore dies, mm. um, and Snape, at least in this movie, gets revealed to be a very 
bad, bad guy. So um, it, it is it is not unexpected that they would um, they would sap um, the world of the movie uh, of any any hint of color and uh, visual liveliness. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Look. Agreed. Agreed. I, I understand artistically why they did it. Um, but yeah, I guess, like, there's a part of me that misses that sort of fun, wondrous Hogwarts that we're not really going to get for the rest of these films, right? Um, and I think that's why this film kind of still has a special place in my heart, because it is kind of the last full year of Hogwarts that we really get. Um, yeah. Andrew, Max, is there anything else we want to discuss here? No, I think we've covered covered it all. Nothing from me. Yeah, well, look, we've we spent quite a bit of time. Well, I've blabbed on quite a bit about this film. So um, I think we'll um, give it a rest there for Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I think generally we still like it, right? Like, are we, we're in agreement that generally we still quite enjoy this film. I mean, I know that we've been quite critical about it, but I think generally we still quite like this film and I know that Andrew has said this is her favourite Harry Potter film so yeah like I, I know that we've been critical but I, I guess this, the takeaway here is that we've been critical but this is still a very watchable very enjoyable Harry Potter film um, I think everyone would around the table would agree with that yeah absolutely yeah um, so yeah so we're going to keep forging forging forward with these Harry Potter films we will Next, watch Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. An incredibly depressing film, <laughs> from my recollection of it, but we'll see what happens on the second, on the rewatch. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for joining me tonight, and um, we'll see everyone soon. Say goodnight, everyone. Goodnight! Bye.